Today's scripture is Daniel 7, 1 through 14. In the first year of King Belshazzar of Babylon, Daniel had a dream with visions in his mind as he was lying in his bed. He wrote down the dream, and here is the summary of his account. Daniel said, In my vision at night I was watching, and suddenly the four winds of heaven stirred up the great sea. Four huge beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion that had eagle's wings. I continued watching until its wings were torn off. It was lifted up from the ground, set on its feet like a man, and given a human mind. Suddenly, another beast appeared, a second one, that looked like a bear. It was raised up on one side, with three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, Get up, gorge yourself on flesh. After this, while I was watching, suddenly another beast appeared. It was like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. It had four heads, and it was given dominion. After this, while I was watching in the night visions, suddenly a fourth beast appeared, frightening and dreadful and incredibly strong, with large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed, and it trampled with its feet whatever was left. It was different from all the beasts before it, and it had ten horns. While I was considering the horns, suddenly another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. And suddenly in this horn there were eyes like the eyes of a human, and a mouth that was speaking arrogantly. As I kept watching, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white like snow, and the hair of his head like whitest wool. His throne was flaming fire, its wheels were blazing fire. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from his presence. Thousands upon thousands served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was convened, and the books were opened. I watched then, because of the sound of the arrogant words the horn was speaking. As I continued watching, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was removed, but an extension of life was granted to them for a certain period of time. I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Erica, for reading that passage. And just a quick note, we do know you spell your name not with a C, but with a K. Uh, it's just part of that ongoing debate, uh, which is the right spelling of Eric and Erica. Of course, uh, we all know it's C. But this fall, we are looking at the book of Daniel together. That was quite a passage. I want to encourage you to keep it out in front of you on your phones, your device, or if you have your Bible. We're going to be walking through that and looking at this crazy vision together. Now, when we started the book of Daniel about seven, eight weeks ago, I have to confess that I wasn't sure about what I was getting myself into. But now, seven, eight weeks later, I am firmly convinced that Daniel is required reading for anyone who wants to make sense of and live faithfully in the times that we are in. Uh, some Bibles, uh, you may have one of these at the front of the Bible. It has kind of a reference section. It might say, if you are anxious for anxious times, turn to Philippians chapter 4. If you are fearful, 
uh, go to Psalm 23. If you um, want to learn to pray, uh, go to the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. I think, based on what we've seen so far, what I've learned from the book of Daniel, there should be an addition that says, if you are living in a global pandemic, in intense times of political division, in cultural tensions, and you wonder, where is God in all of it? Where is this going? Turn to the book of Daniel. Daniel was written for times when it's hardest for us to believe that God is indeed in control and at work. Daniel tells us he is. But to believe this, when all that we can see is chaos and difficulty and challenge, to believe this, we need to learn to see the world in a whole new way and find our place and purpose in it. Now, Daniel is not the easiest book for us to understand, especially passages like the one we just read together just now. Now, I never thought personally that I would preach on the book of Daniel. I didn't think, I didn't know it could be done. In fact, in seminary, when we studied it, I remember thinking, I will never preach on this book. It is too strange because of passages like this one with beasts and visions. And these take place over the next five chapters in the book of Daniel. But I'm going for it. We're going for it together because I believe God has something very important for us in these chapters, starting with today. Now, the book of Daniel, it's divided into two parts pretty neatly. Chapters 1 through 6 are the stories of Daniel and his friends in exile. Some of the most well-known stories are there. Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. But part 2 in chapters 7 through 12, there we find the visions of Daniel. Now, Daniel wrote down and preserved these strange visions. Most of what he said himself left him confused, terrified, and disturbed. And so we say, Daniel, thanks, thanks. That's how you felt when you saw these. How about us? Some 2,000 plus years later. This is where it gets weird and confusing and difficult. But it is worth it if we know what we are reading. And that's where we need to start. Okay, you heard this vision. What is it? These strange visions are what scholars call apocalyptic literature. When we use the word apocalypse, the way that we use it now in, the, in our modern usage, we usually mean uh, end of the world, disaster, a time of great chaos and destruction. But that's not what the word apocalypse means. And it is not the main focus and message of apocalyptic writing in the Bible. It's not the main focus and message of this vision. And this is where we can go way off when we forget this and start to focus on uh, current events and, and fulfillment and try to match everything up. Apocalypse means revealing. The word means unveiling. It's like pulling back a curtain to reveal like a new product, maybe like a new iPhone. They pull back uh, the product, they pull off the thing and say, here it is. It's an unveiling of something new. These parts of the Bible pull back the curtain between heaven and earth to reveal and uncover things that are hidden to us, things that we can't see, especially in times of great chaos and great challenge and upheaval. So the book of Revelation, it is uh, entitled Revelation, because that is what the Greek word apocalypse means. Its Greek title is apocalypse. Its English translation is revelation because that is what it means and that is what it is doing. It's not called the book of chaos. It's not called the book of upheaval or destruction. 
because Apocalypse is about the revealing of God and his hidden work and purpose in the middle of chaos, in the middle of disorder and confusion in our world. So, the Bible's apocalyptic books and vision, they all come out of, they were all written during times when it was darkest and it was the most difficult to see what God was up to in the world. When God's people were looking for signs of hope and they couldn't see it, any sign that God was at work and in control, and based on what they could see, they weren't seeing anything. And so they were struggling to believe that God was in charge, that he could be trusted, and his plan, in fact, was moving forward. Times like ours. As we are living now in election week, with a lot of tension, maybe a lot of fear, maybe a lot of confusion you're feeling, with COVID resurging in our nation. People are asking and have been asking, God, are you there? I don't see it. Maybe you've been asking that. I know I've been struggling with that too. In these times, God says to us, I know all you can see is upheaval. Maybe all you see ahead is disaster and danger. And when you don't see me, when you don't see my purpose and you don't see hope, let me show you what's really going on. Let me pull back the curtain. That's what's happening here in this passage. So sorry to let you down. I will not be predicting the end of the world from Daniel, but I do hope to show you from this vision that it gives us three ways we need to see the world and our lives this coming week, so you can consider this my election week sermon, but beyond, far beyond, in these trying and confusing times. Three ways we need to see the world. Let's go one by one as we look at this vision. First, we need to learn to see the world with realistic vision. Now, you say realistic. We just read about four huge beasts coming up from the sea. There was a lion, picture it, with eagle's wings, a bear with three ribs in its mouth, a four-headed winged leopard, and a monstrous beastly thing with iron teeth. And, oh, there's a little horn with eyes and a mouth that is talking trash. And you say be realistic? You know, I found this, I've been trying to show, uh, as we've been looking through the book of Daniel, famous art depicting these scenes. Now, this one's pretty crazy. You can look at some crazy stuff out there on the internet. But way back in uh, the 16th century, there was a wood wood carving, a wood cutting. uh, And I want to show you this picture. There it is right there. Somebody took it and actually colored it in so you can see it. Just look at that picture. It was freaky stuff. That's what Daniel saw. How does this help me see the world more realistically? Good question. Let's look at how we are supposed to interpret this strange vision. Look with me at chapter 7, verses 15 and 17, okay? We had just read to us by Erica the vision, and then later on in the chapter, the vision is interpreted for Daniel. So he says this vision deeply distressed him, it terrified him, and we get it, it's freaky if you really imagine it. So he asked one of those standing by, maybe this is an angel in the vision, and he says, I I love this, he says, can you clarify this? Could you clarify this? What an understated question. Verse 17, the interpretation begins, and it says, these huge beasts are four in number, four kings who will rise from the earth. Now I know what you're thinking, tell me who these kings are or were. Yeah, let's figure that out, but not so fast. This interpretation here, 
calls our attention to the number four. This is four in number. Four is a significant symbolic number in the Bible. There's four winds. That's used to describe the whole earth from every corner, like, like looking at the world from a square. It means the whole thing, the whole picture. There's a lot of discussion here amongst all the scholarly uh, literature, and you can go look into this yourself, about which four kingdoms these were for Daniel's time and for after Daniel. Was it Babylon, his kingdom? Was it Medo-Persia, the kingdom after? And then Greece, the great uh, Greek kingdom under Alexander the Great, and then Rome. Some say, no, 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 that can't be it. This is uh, not ending in Rome. It's Babylon and the Medes and Persians separate and ending in Greece. There are good arguments on both sides. But we must not lose the forest for those trees. What's clear, look at this from the interpretation, is that all these beasts symbolize kingdoms that have some kind of expression. They have some kind of life from Daniel's day until the day the kingdom of the Most High comes and puts an end to all these beastly kingdoms. What I'm saying here is that this vision gives us a way to see all of human history and all of human kingdoms from Daniel's day all the way up until our day. Daniel gives us two very important ways for us to see the kingdoms of this world. And they must be held together in order for us to see history and kingdoms and politics properly. Back in Daniel chapter 2, if you remember a number of weeks ago, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and a vision. He saw these same four kingdoms as kingdoms of gold and silver and bronze and iron in a big, glorious, majestic statue. That was his dream. And it revealed that these impressive, strong, and glorious kingdoms all received this glory and power from God. They would one day fade away and God's eternal kingdom would come. But here in chapter 7, we have a very different vision about these same kingdoms. There they were gold and impressive and glorious. Here they are beastly, terrifying, and violent, which is true. Both. It's very important for us. Let me tell you how this applies. Should we be optimistic or pessimistic about earthly kingdoms and politics and history? Should we be optimistic or pessimistic about the election, the future, and our country? This vision, the book of Daniel, the Bible says, the answer is neither. We should be realistic. The Bible does not give us a pessimistic view of the world or history. As some can misinterpret doctrines such as sin, the sinfulness of all human beings, and total depravity. Some think these doctrines imply that we should have a pessimistic view of the world and history, that it's all fully evil, it's all corrupt. Let's just get out of here as quickly as we can. That is not true. There is common grace from God, even in the most unlikely of places like Babylon. We've seen that time and time again in Daniel. God was there. He was at work. He made Nebuchadnezzar this head of gold. Hard to understand, hard to grasp at that time and now, but he ordains human governments to uphold good. We see this view affirmed in Romans 13, in 1 Peter chapter 2, even as Christians were living under the violent and often oppressive rule of Rome. But the Bible does not give us an optimism about history and life and kingdoms in this world either. 
It doesn't tell us, just obey and be a good citizen, and then you will have a healthy and wealthy life. You will be free from trouble. No, not at all. Daniel was one of the most faithful and obedient people in all the Bible. He was exiled. He was forced into government service. He was nearly executed for not worshiping this golden statue, the state. After 50 or 60 years of faithful service, he was forgotten by Belshazzar. Then he was thrown into the lion's den by Darius. Christian friends, this is a realistic vision. This is giving us a realistic vision that we might learn to see things as they really are. That we might be realistic about the beastly potential of all governments and the effects of sin on them. Now, specifically, there are two things this strange vision tells us. We must see it work in the kingdoms of this world. There is the reality of systemic evil. So evil here in this vision shows us that it doesn't operate only on a, a personal individual level. These beasts, they are more than just individual kings. They are empires. They are cultures. They are systems working to oppress and dehumanize and replace God. There's a reality of systemic evil. There is also the reality of spiritual evil here in this vision. Evil does not operate only at an individual, personal level, and evil does not only operate at a human level. Did you notice where the beasts come from? They come from the sea. Chapter 7, verse 3 says, The beasts come up from the sea. The sea in the Bible is symbolic of chaos and evil. No matter how great and glorious and golden or strong the kingdoms of this world are and seem to us. This gives us a realism. There is a reality of systemic evil. The New Testament uses the word the world to describe that. The world is the system of life that every culture and nation builds to live and make sense of the world independent from God. And there's a reality also of spiritual evil. The best and most glorious and impressive governments and kingdoms will never be fully rid of these beastly elements. So a Christian must learn to see their nation, the kingdom they live in, realistically, honestly, and truly. And that means seeing through all the glitter of gold and seeing injustice, oppression, and idolatry where it is. So the Bible gives us this realistic vision of human history about every kingdom and nation in this world and their rise and fall. We are not to be overly optimistic. If we just get this leader, if we just get these policies, if we just get these laws, then the kingdom will come. We cannot be overly optimistic and not overly pessimistic. God is at work. He was at work even in Babylon and Persia. So those are the first set of lenses this vision gives us. It gives us a realistic vision so we can see the earthly kingdoms of this world for what they are. So we should not be surprised when they act beastly and chaotic. Times follow. This means for the Christian, our hope can never be in any kingdom or leader and or any party. But this vision does much more than help us see realistically. It gives us a hopeful vision that no matter what, no matter how chaotic and confusing things are, we can have hope. Let me show you how. In my study this week, I came across a very helpful insight from Old Testament scholar, one of the best in my opinion, Christopher Wright. <clears throat> in his commentary on Daniel, he pointed out something that now, as I'm reading it, seems obvious. He says, the vision of these beasts and the vision of the thrones in heaven 
are happening at the same time. Do you see that? It's like we're seeing history on a split screen. It's not like a, a one vision happens first and then the next. These are happening simultaneously. It's like a split screen on your TV or like two windows open on your computer at the same time. It's not a vision of how just how history will end. It's a simultaneous vision with a climactic and stunning ending. Here is how we are to read this. It gives us great hope. At the same time as the kingdoms of this world roar, God in his kingdom, he still reigns. He's still in control. He's still at work. He is on the throne. Look at verse 9. As I kept watching, Daniel says, thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days took his seat. The title given to God here is Ancient of Days. It's a picture of God's eternality, that he is unchanging in his being, in his power, in his sovereignty. No matter what it looks like to us, God is the Ancient of Days. Does not change. With all these beasts running around, with all this chaos, what does God do? He took his seat. And we should have great comfort in that. God is not threatened. God is not surprised in any way by these terrifying beasts. Now, for us, a natural reaction to meeting a beast, a predatory, vicious beast, would be either one of two things, right? Fight or flight. <laughs> we will either fight back or we will just turn away and run in the other direction. Now, if we see uh, realistically, and if we only just see realistically, there, these, there, there are these beasts, this chaos, I can see it. If we only have one screen on and not this other screen on at the same time, we will just fight or flight. We will just run and hide in fear when things get chaotic and we can't understand it, or we will fight back like beasts, which is a lot of what's happening right now. If we're only paying attention to the news and our social media feeds, we've only got one screen on, friends. We need to turn the screen on of God's throne room that he gives us here in Daniel 7. There is a prayer <clears throat> that is found in, in my daily uh, prayer liturgy that I often pray. And it goes like this. It's at the very beginning, before you get into the readings and the other prayers, it's a very simple prayer that says, Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and shall be forever. That is a prayer that turns the other screen on, that reminds us God is seated on the throne. But there's another reaction you might have about this. You would say, I can see how that might be hopeful, but I also want to know why is God just sitting? Uh, what about those who suffer the most at the hands of these beastly, dehumanizing, evil, unjust world kingdoms and rulers? Shouldn't God get up and do something about it? Well, there's hope here in this vision for that as well. If you look at verse 10, you see God is not just sitting in his sovereign power only. God is sitting in judgment. Very sobering, but also very hopeful. His throne 
is flaming fire, it says. The wheels of his throne are fire. And from the throne of the Ancient of Days, there's a river of fire flowing out. It's a lot of fire in this vision. And then it says, court was convened and the books were opened. What is all this fire? Fire symbolizes God's holiness, his absolute purity, his absolute commitment to what is right and just. What does it mean that court is convened and the books are open? It means every single person, government, leader, kingdom is accountable, will be held accountable for their actions, for what they do with the power given to them. All wrongs will be accounted for. All wrongs will be made right by the judge who sits on the throne. No human kingdom can promise this. Only the kingdom of God. There is great hope in that. But the vision doesn't say, if we read on, that the Ancient of Days is going to do this all by himself, all alone. There's this other mysterious figure at the very center of it all. So look at verse 11 as we read on. And this is still split screen. Daniel says, I watched. Okay, and then on my heavenly split screen, this horn came in. He was speaking, talking trash, boasting, and the rest of the beasts were still living, it says. They had some extension of life, so all these beasts are still there on one hand. And then he continued watching, and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. The hope of this vision all depends on this figure, the Son of Man. He destroys the beast. He rules forever. Who is he? If we understand this, friends, if this is true, this vision, this is massively, this is astoundingly, unimaginably hopeful no matter what is happening, no matter what we see around us. It changes everything about how we see the frightening vision on split screen one. And it gives us hope in times of confusion, chaos, and fear. Did you know that the Son of Man was Jesus' favorite way to refer to himself? Far and above the title he uses to talk about himself more than any other title, more than 80 times, in the Gospels, he says, I am the Son of Man. This vision is where he got it from. Using this title is what sealed his fate. It's what got him killed. When he was standing in his trial before the high priests, and they said, just tell us, are you the Messiah? He quoted Daniel, chapter 7, verse 13. He said, you will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his robes and said, that's all we need to hear. What does it mean that Jesus is the Son of Man? Well, who is the Son of Man that comes? Verse 13 says he's like a Son of Man. Clearly, he's a human figure, yet he's coming on the clouds of heaven. In the Bible, only God rides on the clouds. Psalm 68, 4, Psalm 104, 3 and 4, Isaiah 19, 1. It is God's heavenly divine nature that is being represented by these clouds. So this Son of Man receives glory and service from people of all nations in power that can only be God's. The Son of Man is human and divine at the same time. It's shocking, mysterious, 
but so hopeful if this is true. In contrast to the dehumanizing way the nations and the kingdoms of this world rule, like predatory beasts, bringing out the beast in all of us, as it were. God's rule and kingdom humanizes us. At the very center of it all is one like a son of man. Humanity, the Bible says, uses the freedom and power given to us by God to try to become God. And in doing so, we become beasts, dehumanizing ourselves and others. The gospel is God uses his sovereign freedom and power to become a man in order to rehumanize us. That's who the Son of Man is. How does he come? Well, Jesus said the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In contrast to the suffering and the terror that the beasts inflict. In order to get people, force people to serve them, the Son of Man comes to suffer and to serve. Not taking our lives, but giving his life away for us. He comes not with the power of force, but with the power of substitutionary, sacrificial love. This power, according to the gospel, is what overcomes our sin and evil. And it is what overcomes the sin and evil in our broken world and all that stands in the way of God ruling and reigning and bringing peace, wholeness, justice, and righteousness. This gives us great hope. God himself understands what it's like to live among the beasts, to suffer because of the beasts. Because in every way he was made like us, yet without sin, Hebrews says. He experienced fear and temptation when all it seemed to him, Jesus, the Son of Man. Where is God? What is he doing? He faced those same temptations. So he understands when we go there. And yet in the cross, he achieved victory over them. He unmasked them for what they are. He disarmed them at the cross. So sin, evil, and death, and injustice, and chaos. They find their defeat at the cross. And the hope is this. If God has already gone farther than we'd ever imagined, becoming one of us, dying in our place, suffering and dying for us, how will he not complete the work? We can have great hope that despite what we can see, his kingdom is at work and will come. So this is a realistic vision. It is also a very hopeful vision. Now I'm going to do something they tell you not to do in preaching class. I am going to use a fancy word that I rarely use myself and you might not have heard of as one of my main points, but it is such a good word. It is a perfect word that we need to learn because it tells us the difference this hope can make right now. It's the word proleptic. This is a proleptic vision. Now, proleptic, let's define that. I have a definition for you. The proleptic means when a future act or development is represented as if already accomplished or existing. Okay? Let me share an illustration. When, when you're watching a sports uh, game, sports, and if you're just like a true fan, okay, I'm talking about your true fan. This is your team. When you talk about them, you use uh, first person plural, me and us. Okay? You're like, that's your team. 
or if it's an athlete that you love and you're like you just identify with them. And when when they're playing this big game, if it's in the playoffs or a rivalry or a World Series or championship, here's here's the thing. You're watching it, but you don't really enjoy watching it at all. <laughs> you can't enjoy watching it while it's going on. It's too hard. It's too anxious. It's not fun. Maybe if your team is ahead by like 200 points or runs, then you sit back and enjoy it. But imagine this. If you can't watch it live and um, you record it, you pull it up on your DVR and you're watching it and you forgot to turn off your phone and your friend texts you and says, congratulations on the win. It ruins it all. It spoils it all for you. But here's the illustration. It changes everything about how you watch that game. You actually do enjoy it. You actually aren't overly stressed. When your team it gets behind, you're not freaking out. When they do something ridiculous and make a mistake, you're not yelling and screaming at the television. You're relaxed. It's the same game. It's the same ups and downs, same challenges, same mistakes, but a totally different experience. Why? Because you already know the outcome. You already know your team wins. This is what this vision gives us. This is how a Christian is supposed to live, knowing the future act, the final act, is accomplished and does already exist. Jesus is seated on the throne, and he will one day come again. And he will usher in a kingdom that will last forever. This is the gospel. Jesus, the Son of Man, is reigning now. He will one day reign fully and forever. And as one pastor put it so well, it means Christians don't live for the future. We live from the future. Let that sink in. As Christians, we don't live for the future. We live from the future. Because the future is guaranteed. I find myself struggling a lot these days with a lack of certainty about the future. You know, one week at a time is kind of how it feels like we're living. Uh, what will happen next? What crisis will come next? When will all this disruption end? And it's starting to feel so weary as it stretches on and on and on ad infinitum, right? Now, in verse 18, in the interpretation of the vision, I love how it says this. It says the kingdom will come forever. Yes, forever and ever. As if to say, believe it. Time as we know it, time as we see it. We can't even imagine a forever. Yes, forever and ever. Versus the time of the beastly kingdoms, which is called for a time, just a short time. It won't last forever. You know when you are a kid and it seems like being in, in school in your one class, it lasts forever. It's like an eternity and you're looking at the clock going, when will this end? But now when I take my kids to school and I drop them off and pick them up, it's like barely any time went by for their whole day in school. From the vantage point of being 43, year, <laughs> 43 years old now, I see and feel how quickly time goes. Time is different for me. To live proleptically with this vision, it means as we live from the future, we see this time for what it is. 2 Corinthians says, we see these light momentary afflictions that are preparing for us an absolutely incomparable weight of glory that is eternal. When we live 
from the future, we can see time differently. You know, to live from the future, this is not an escapist hope. You may be wondering, is this just kind of a, just a way to check out? No, this is not an escapist hope at all. This vision gives us great personal hope for ourselves. That by faith in Jesus, I can be a part of this eternal kingdom forever. Yes, forever and ever. But do you see, and you need to see, that it gives us far more than that. It gives us a public hope. It gives us a universal hope. We can say it gives us a political hope. This vision is not about how God will save some individuals out from this world. This vision is about how God will bring his kingdom to bear over this entire world. This is not an individual, self-help kind of message to just survive. This is a message. This is a proclamation. This is a vision of what will, in fact, be universally true, public. The kingdom of God will come. God's intentions and designs for all things will come. All sad things will be made untrue. With this hope, we can be free from fear. We do not have to be afraid of the beast. He will try to wear us out, as verse 25 says later. He will try to wear us out, it says. It says he'll wear the saints out, try to change the times and the laws and the seasons. You know, with, with chaos all around us, with suffering, with all these changes, it can feel like we are wearing out. And this vision tells us, do not go weary of doing good. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus and his kingdom when you grow weary. We can be free from fear and weariness. And with this hope, we can be free to serve. Friends, one of my final statements here. This vision encourages us with this. Don't fight the beasts by becoming beasts ourselves. The victory will go to the Son of Man who came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. In this week ahead and in the months to come, we must not succumb to the temptation to fight beastly power with beastly power. We must, like our Savior, who has taken on our humanity who has incarnated to understand us. We must lead the way in listening, understanding, and humanizing even those whom we disagree with, even those whom we might be afraid of. We must lead the way. We must not take the beastly route. No matter how bad it looks to us, this vision, which is realistic, hopeful, and proleptic, no matter how bad it looks to us, when we can't see anything, except chaos and evil and disorder and difficulty. Friends, remember, God is on the throne. The kingdom of the Son of Man will not be overcome. We can take hope in this. Please pray with me. God, we thank you for this vision. It is uh, strange to us. It is hard for us to understand, but we thank you. As we begin to understand the hope that it can give to us, and I pray for my own heart and the hearts of all who are listening here, we need hope. 
And we know you've given us this vision to give us hope, and I pray we would take a hold of it. You would help us learn to see things as they really are, and you would help us learn to fix our eyes on Jesus who has gone before us. When we're struggling, when we're weary, we know he has run the race ahead of us. And in the race that we're in now, some of us feel like we're tired, we're struggling to keep going, we have our eyes fixed on the wrong things, and so may this passage encourage us. There is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And where we feel shaken, where we feel discouraged, I pray you'd help us stand firm, stand up, keep walking with eyes fixed on Jesus, and keep open to the ways that we can help others see him. We pray in his powerful name. Amen.